This is The Guardian. One of the first great acts of the human species was to spread across the globe. And we've been on the move ever since, taking other species with us, which can play havoc with local ecosystems. Today, the problem is worse than ever. Invasive species are on the rise. Here in the UK, where the number of grey squirrels has increased rapidly, scientists have come up with a novel way of controlling the population. Hazelnut paste laced with contraceptives. Around the world, it's a huge issue, and one of the major discussion points at COP15, the UN's Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, Canada. It's not going to be an easy one to solve. Preventing, tracking and managing the spread of these species is a serious challenge. So today, we're getting an update from COP15 and taking a closer look at the billion-dollar problem of invasive species. I'm The Guardian's science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Patrick Greenfield, as a Guardian biodiversity reporter, you've been covering the long lead-up to COP15, but now you're finally there in Montreal. What's it been like so far? It is fantastic to finally be here after two and a half years of delays in multiple possible venues and negotiators are finally getting down to what should be in the text for this decade's global biodiversity framework. In terms of what it's actually like in the city, well, look, it's the start of winter in Canada. So I, I was in Egypt by the beautiful coral reefs for COP27 only three weeks ago now, and it's very different. It's cold, not a lot of sunlight, but Montreal, for those who've not been, is, is a kind of beautiful, elegant place. Lots of big skyscrapers, nice restaurants, very comfortable. The Canadians have done a brilliant job organising this at the last minute. Um, so there's a really nice vibe, I think, around the talks that might not have been there in Egypt for, for those who, who suffered, I think, with the food and water and the rest of it. There have been some big names at the conference already. Who have you been speaking to? I had the pleasure of sitting down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo a couple of days ago to talk about their hopes for the conference. And they were very much focused on this big target for protecting 30% of land and sea, 30 by 30. That's what Canada politically really wants from this agreement. We were off to a roaring start. Uh, when we came into office in 2015, we had 1% protection of our marine and coastal areas, and we're now up to oh, like 14.7, almost 15%. Uh, but we're confident we're going to make that 25 by 25, uh, and as well make that 30 by 30. Although, when in my preparations over the past weeks for this, I suddenly realized, yeah, well, we signed on to the 25 by 25 and the 30 by 30. And someone pointed out, well, you didn't actually sign on to anything. That's something that you promised in your election campaign that wasn't actually a big global commitment made yet. I said, well, we should change that. He goes, yeah, that's the plan. We're getting the world to sign on to 30 by 30. That's one of our, our focuses right there. Take us through some of the targets. I mean, what are the sort of headline topics being discussed there? The UN Convention on Biological Diversity has three aims. One, conservation. Two, the sustainable use of Earth's resources. And three, this 
complicated but incredibly political pillar on sharing the benefits from genetic resources fairly. Now, all of the 22 draft targets and four goals feed into these three pillars. So for the conservation pillar, we have restoring an area I think is roughly going to be the size of China. That's that's one of the draft targets. They're considering others on invasive species. For the other two pillars, we're thinking about how we manage wild species, right? The part of this is linking to how we consume, how we mine, how we farm. And then finally, there's that issue that goes through everything in life, right? Money, how we're going to support this, how we're going to share the benefits from biodiversity. You mentioned invasive species, and that's what we're going to focus on on the podcast today. I mean, why is that such a major issue? So there are five major drivers of biodiversity loss identified by ITBES, which is the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Now, that is the biodiversity equivalent of the IPCC, which produces the best climate science. The best biodiversity scientists are saying these are the five biggest threats. And one of those is the spread of invasive species, right? So I think uh, New Zealand only has bats that are native mammals, but the European settlers there brought rabbits, um, rats, mice, and that's really had a a very negative impact on their native wildlife. And they've got a big eradication plan that they're working towards. These examples are everywhere from the Caribbean to Australia to the, the Pacific. And in many ways, it's a real success story of, of biodiversity conservation because what many conservationists are now doing is eradicating these species and finding that pretty quickly we can transform very degraded landscapes simply by, I mean, to be frank, killing the rats, killing the mice, whatever it might be that are eating birds in their nests. And as always, nature seems to bounce back very quickly. But one person you should really speak with is Professor Helen Roy. She is part of the ITBES assessment on invasive species that's coming out next year. And that will really start quantifying the impacts across the planet. Hi, I'm Professor Helen Roy, and I'm an ecologist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And I'm here at COP as one of the co-chairs of the Invasive Alien Species Assessment um, for ITBES. Helen, before we get into the details about some of the things you're discussing at COP, I'd like to get an overview. What's the difference between non-native and invasive species? A non-native species is one that's been moved from one part of the world to another part of the world where it didn't previously occur by humans. And that human activity is a really important part of this definition. And it can be, for example, a species moving in someone's suitcase, or it could be moving in the ballast water of a ship, for instance. So many, many different ways in which these species can be moved around the world by us. So an invasive non-native species is one that when it arrives in that new region, it establishes it has a sustained population and it will cause some kind of impact to biodiversity, ecosystems or the way we live. So what kinds of threats can invasive species pose to local wildlife? It might be that it outcompetes some of the native species or it might be that it's feeding on some of those native species. Or indeed, it might be causing some kind of so-called ecosystem level effect. If we think, for example, about ants, there are many invasive non-native species ants that are occurring around the world. These are what we call ecosystem engineers. So they arrive in a new region and they will feed directly on 
the native wildlife. Because they will form such large colonies, they can be churning up the soil, for instance, and causing quite um, extreme ecosystem level effects. And they can also help to spread diseases around which presumably some of these local wildlife might not have any sort of immunity to. Absolutely. So um, we do know that some of the invasive non-native species are carrying diseases and that they vector them to other species. Um, in the UK, we know the native white-clawed crayfish is um, threatened by the signal crayfish, and that's through the transmission of a disease. We also know in some cases, some of the species may hybridize with one another, and therefore we lose um, some of that kind of genetic status of our species as well. And how much damage can invasive species actually do to ecosystems? How bad can it get? So it can get really, really catastrophic. And there are examples, for instance, on some islands where there may be a multitude of invasive non-native species and they might be interacting with one another and also having adverse effects on the native wildlife and ecosystems. I've just come back actually from St Helena. I've been doing some work on the UK overseas territories and there we can see some of the catastrophic effects of some of these invasive non-native species. So, for example, New Zealand flax is a species that was introduced onto St. Helena um, for making ropes. But it's a species that spread throughout the cloud forests. And where the New Zealand flax occurs, they don't see the endemic plants. These are plants that don't occur anywhere else in the world. And the New Zealand flax is posing a threat to them by competing for the space that they might be growing in. And I was wondering, actually, whether the people living in these areas who depend on nature for food or for their livelihoods can also be affected by these invasive species. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we think about an island such as St Helena, this remote and beautiful place in the middle Atlantic Ocean, the people who are there are very much dependent on the nature around them. And so these perturbations are really having quite a profound impact on them. Let's say you have a species that's causing havoc in an ecosystem. I don't know, rats on the Scilly Isles or brook trout in the US. How do you even begin to get a handle on what to do? I mean, what are some of the ways that people deal with invasive species? So we know that preventing their arrival in the first place is, is really the best way to proceed. And we've been doing a lot of work on making predictions about what might be the next invasive non-native species that could arrive in a region and cause some kind of threat to biodiversity and ecosystems or indeed to, to well-being. And making those predictions then allows awareness to be raised around those particular species biosecurity to be put in place, for instance, and action to be taken to prevent their arrival in the first place. Of course, sometimes still species will arrive and then early warning and rapid response is extremely important because long-term eradication, which is the next step, is really costly and really tricky for a lot of species. Actually, at COP15, it was really inspiring to hear at one of the side events a talk from someone from Tonga talking about the way in which through rat eradication, they've seen their native wildlife turtles and seabirds increasing in abundance again. So there are these wonderful stories of hope and success, but prevention is really the best way. 
So, Helen, what's up for discussion at COP15 when it comes to invasive species? And what would you like to see agreed there? I'm part of the, the science community here. And really, our role as scientists is to provide evidence to underpin these important decisions that are going to be made. And I'm really excited as well to hear about the monitoring framework that's being discussed. How can we ensure that we have the best data sets so that we really understand the problems that we're facing and also so that we can be evaluate the actions and the measures that are taken and to be very reactive and thinking of new approaches if what we're doing isn't enough. But I think that going forward, we need to ensure that we effectively communicate the issues around biodiversity loss and the biodiversity crisis and ensure that everyone is on board for making the difference that we need to make going forward for taking action to bend this curve of biodiversity loss. Helen, many thanks for coming on and good luck at the conference. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thanks again to Patrick Greenfield and Professor Helen Roy. If you want to read some of Patrick's reporting from COP15 and keep up to date with everything that's happening there, head to theguardian.com. Now, before you go, it's that time of year when I tell you about The Guardian and The Observer's 2022 charity appeal. As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the poverty line in the UK, families across the country are facing a bleak Christmas period. Join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line, All your donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality, supporting those who have been hit the hardest. Donate at theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2022. That's theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2022. We've also put a link on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.